Hi, you're about to listen to an episode of Borough Talks, a podcast from Borough Market. A very, very warm welcome to you. We're going to be bringing you a series of conversations around food and food culture with some inspiring guests and leading voices from the food industry. I'm your host, Angela Clutton. I really hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Borough Talks. And if you do, you can subscribe for more from us. Hello, everybody, and a very warm welcome to Borough Talks, which is Borough Markets podcast. I'm Angela, your host, and I'm sitting here today on a very, very sunny day, actually. It's very nice to be sitting here chatting with Jamal Azel, who is Change Please, basically. Hi, Jamal. Hi, thank you for having me. Lovely, lovely to see you. Now, um, Change Please, we're going to talk in a lot of detail about what it is and what you do. But let's, let's for anyone who's not, if this is their first time they've heard Change Please, what's that? Give us the... Give us the pitch. So we are a not-for-profit social enterprise that tackles homelessness through jobs and employment. We find people who are homeless and rough sleeping. We provide them with a living wage job, housing in 10 days, a bank account, therapy support, which actually is the most important part of what we offer, uh, and then a future job, which typically happens after around six months of joining us. Um, So it's a full-life intervention to help somebody out of homelessness where they're dependent on them themselves and not being dependent on the government for handouts or or local councils, etc. So it provides them with dignity, self-belief, self-worth, because they're solving the problem for themselves rather than being dependent on someone else. And, I mean, in some ways we could just stop now because, <laughs> <laughs> because I think you've kind of already blown my mind and maybe the listeners too about the scale of what it is you do. But I do want to kind of drill into every point that you made there. There's a lot there to get into. But the word you didn't mention in all that was coffee. Ah, yes. Well, actually, coffee is the vehicle... Um, it started as the most important part because that gives us the trade to be able to then grow and have more of an impact. But really what coffee does is it creates a safe space for somebody to change the narrative of, of uh, the situation they're in. So we have so many rough sleepers that will typically be sitting outside a train station with their hand out asking somebody for, for money or f- for help. And you then change that narrative for that person to then stand behind a coffee counter Um, where someone's now coming to them, asking them for a cappuccino, a latte, a flat white. So they now have a sense of worth that they're giving something back to somebody else, which really speeds up the process. Now, whether you're a victim of domestic abuse, sexual abuse, you've gone through a divorce, a bereavement, you can't see your children, you're a military veteran, whatever the reason is that someone's become homeless in the first place, that um, reintegration back into society and feeling like you have some worth is much more important than the housing and the job element. They think it's not when they join us, but when we start to provide counselling and psychology services, etc., that's what unlocks everything else. And and the coffee element is that conduit to just making them feel like they are providing a service to someone else and speeds up the healing process. That's so interesting. Borough Market listeners who've been to Borough Market will know know the Change Please stall there and you have Change Please stalls, stands, little buses and things saying coffee, you know, all over the place. But as you just said so brilliantly, the coffee is it could almost, but when you say it, it could almost be anything. Exactly. It just happens to be coffee. Yeah. And what, what's interesting about coffee is that when when we first had the idea for Change Please, it, it uh, we thought of restaurants, we thought of tea, um, you know, could it be service-based employment? But what's, what is good about coffee is that the skills to learn to be a barista are quite quick. Um, but the challenge to turn up on time, to fight any internal 
challenges that you have if you've had a bad night's sleep or you've had an argument with with uh, a neighbour to be able to turn up on time and, and, and put on a smile and provide some hospitality service. And they're the skills that are far more important than uh, just learning how to steam milk or to pull a coffee. So that's what we look for in that three to six month process. And that's what our our partners who then go on to provide onward employment are also looking for because you can train skills, but what you can't train is that person's passion, their pride, their want to change their narrative and their story and and, and show that through um, their reliability, their their kind of uh, customer interaction, etc. How did it get started and how long has it been going? So it's it's been going for six years. Um, Only six years? Yeah. Wow. Uh, and it, it uh, I used to be a commodity broker uh, in London for my sins. I'm, I'm still on minus one million karma. I'm working my way up to uh, to be a good person. And um, it, uh, it, it it kind of happened, well, partly for my personal um, want to be a slightly better person. I was on this kind of journey in Vietnam on this 18-hour bus trip. And um, I kind of realized actually what I was doing was pretty empty, pretty soulless, but it made good money. And then I um, I was sitting next to this American traveler on this bus journey and he said, you know, if you're not happy with your job and your life, you should do the rocking chair test. So that's to imagine sitting in your rocking chair at the age of 90, looking back on your life, thinking, what's your legacy? Um, have you left the world in a better place? How are your children going to remember you? Um, what's this whole life thing been about? And I remember just thinking, wow, if, if this bus crashed now... Who would really care? You know, because at that point, were you still a commodity broker? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, and were you feeling pretty done in with all that? Yes. I mean, it, it, it was just pretty empty. It was just, well, this is just about making money. And really, who it, it's at the cost of someone else who's, someone has to lose for you to gain. And that's not how, you know, looking back in hindsight, that's a pretty empty existence, you know. And, and what I've realized since actually is, our value system, our social constructs and how we define success as individuals is really based on where we grew up, you know, what town, what village. If we were grow- if we were born a thousand years ago in a different paradigm, different civilization, if we were born in the Amazon um, in a tribe, then our value system would be completely different. So what transcends truth, what transcends our reason for being here? Um, and, you know, if you distill that down to... Um, for me, the very minimum, um, the very kind of uh, condensed element of, of why we're here should always coexist around um, making someone else's life better. I think you can't really argue with that, um, and that's why when I was on this bus trip, I was just thinking, well, what is this all about? You know, what, what, why are we here? And um, that coincided a couple of weeks later in Vietnam, going to this silent tea house where um, it was a tea house that was set up by these ladies who were both deaf and mute. And they came together, created this beautiful space. And um, the rule of the space was that you had to be silent. Um, and it was uh, full full up, full of Japanese, American tourists, US to- um, British tourists, and it was a silent. And I left there thinking, wow, I want to set up a silent tea house in Clapham in London. Um, very quickly realised I don't really like tea. I hate Clapham. Um, <laughs> other, I, other than that, it yeah, was a great, great plan. idea. <laughs> My bank manager was going to kind of laugh me out of the office when I presented it to him. Um, I have no passion for this, but it's a good idea. Um, and then... And then that's really where the idea for Change Peace came from. I used to rent my properties out at the time to people who were, to councils who then subletted them to people who were homeless and came back to London. I saw a sign at uh, Paddington, a homeless person holding up a sign just with the words change, please. Um, uh, Yeah, and then 
finally, a couple of weeks later, I went to this Banksy exhibition where Banksy's got this street art of a homeless person with a coffee cup and their hand out saying, keep your coins, I want change. And I li- like a good pun. And I, uh, I I said, right, that's it, that's a sign, literally. Um, and I'm going to um, leave my job and set up this organisation that helps people who are homeless and uh, call it Change Peace. And yeah, that's what happened. That is incredible. And where was your first... Well, no, rather than where was, what was your first steps to doing it? How did, how did, I mean, it's all very well kind of having this sort of yeah. life-changing moment and going, I'm going to do this. But doing it is a very different thing. Well, the, the, what was quite difficult for me was this middle space of essentially charity and business. I knew I could do the business part, but I definitely didn't think you could find that middle ground and I was I was on Twitter one day just um, scrolling through aimlessly and I saw I saw a, a tweet by the School of Social Entrepreneurs which are literally I'd say two or three hundred meters from Borough Market on Tooley Street and they had a message saying your idea starts here um, and and that was it really I, I went through a process of this Dragon's Den process presented the idea was probably one of the most difficult things I've done even to this day and got selected. And then I said, if I get selected, that's, you know, that's going to be a sign to, to leave my job. And, and I did. And that was how we started. And we launched a coffee roastery in Peckham, um, which is a kind of super high end coffee space, roasting some of the world's best coffees, um, roast, roasted by people who are homeless. Um, and, and where you get the beans from, there's, you don't, you're not, cavalier about how you source your beans either are you let's let's go back to the coffee just quickly yeah. given we've sort of touched on it talk to us about you know, your sourcing of coffee the origin yeah so that's super important because we can have local impact but um really making sure that the provenance of the, the coffee is is phenomenal so we work directly with farmers uh, mostly socially minded farmers who are supporting their villages and their towns some that one in Peru, for example, that supports women who are victims of domestic abuse. Another one in Tanzania that supports landmine victims. Another one in Mexico that supports small um, holder farms. Um, and um, another one that supports farmers that are unbanked. So essentially they have to sell their coffee for cash because it's not going through a digital banking system and therefore receive super low income or money for the, the coffee. Um, and... Um, it's just ridiculous. Like, for example, for those farmers, they are earning, and it's actually the same as fair trade farmers, they're earning one fifteenth of a penny of a £2.50 cup of coffee. So the product which goes into the product we drink, the main product we go into the product we drink every day, they're earning one fifteenth of a penny of that. So for us, it's so important to find farmers, support them and pay them directly for the product that we're drinking and pay them fairly. So that means that we're paying them based on the taste of the product as opposed to the market commodity price um, because the commodity price can fluctuate and and tank or it can go super high and it, it just means that there isn't a safe level of earning for that farmer. Um, but we're paying them um, based on the competitive price of the taste. And what that also does is it means from a farmer perspective they're, they're not farming as much. They're reducing the uh, intensity of... Um, the, the growing process on that soil um, and it means that they are growing more higher quality coffee as opposed to over farming their land um, which one of the biggest challenges around coffee farming is deforestation so we also try to p- promote uh, shade grown coffee which is naturally organic in any way which increases biodiversity it's it uh, main, it increases the species of birds that live in the trees and and it means that farmers aren't cutting down trees in order to have more arable land to grow their coffee so really supporting farmers is as important for us as as the people we su- support on our local streets 
That's absolutely fascinating. And I don't know loads about coffee farming, so I'm not going to pretend that I do. But I'm wondering if it's slightly similar to um, uh, chocolate cocoa bean farming in the way that sometimes communities, it's because there's so little money earned from doing it, it's not something which people kind of really want to do and so you have this sort of disconnect really of us all really wanting these products and yet the places they're coming from the communities aren't really drawn to working in those industries because they are treated so badly and paid so little and then you're managing to source these farms which not only are producing great coffee and deforestation and all those environmental issues but with real community and societal impact as well I mean it must be a challenge to find these farms I suppose is what I'm saying yeah I mean to see to, to help educate farmers to grow better quality coffee, but also change some of their practices to be more efficient, um, really installs a new level of passion and pride, but also for them to taste the difference of coffee that is grown with with love and, and, and with different farming practices and, and really look after the soil and and understand that the terroir um, is just amazing to see um, them take over that whole process and, and really having a lot more love for it compared to just growing this kind of cherry on a tree and and then um and then selling it off for um you know for a commodity price and and that transition really instills passion and love into what they're doing and therefore excites more of that local community to be part of that process yeah and it's lovely lovely coffee i think you, you know that's the thing with borough i always go to change please because it's change please and all the kind of things around it but also like Obviously, I love all the coffee at Borough equally, but I maybe especially love yeah, Change Please Coffee. Thank you. <laughs> um, so let's get back to the UK. Mm. And uh, so the coffee beans are here. You were just about to talk about the roastery in Peckham. Let's go back. Let's go back to that and follow the journey of Change Please and maybe at the same time, the journey for someone who becomes part of Change Please. Yes. So the coffee's roasted and um, our coffee is all now carbon neutral. Um, we only use plastic-free, crude oil, plastic-free bags. Um, so it's really installing as much sustainability all the way through the supply chain as possible. Um, we then find people who are locally homeless to borough market um, and we then give that person training to Can be I a barista. Just interrupt quickly with one more question I was going to come to you later, but given you've yeah. touched on it. How do you do that? Like You said that as a sentence which made it sound quite simple, but I'm sure it's not because how do you... There are so many barriers there, surely, for a homeless person to approach them, recruit them, as it were. That, you know, that must be a challenge. Mm. So in the early days, we used to have a lot of people who came to us at Borough Market who were locally homeless. And, um, you know, there is a problem of homelessness uh, around there because it attracts a lot of tourists. And um, so, and they hear about what we do. So we do have a lot of um, uh, people walking up to us. But this, the best method is partnering with local charities who essentially would have seen that person over a period of two or three months, understood their challenges, why they became homeless, and then refer people to us when they feel that they're ready. So that means that we can select people and have, a, have an initial filter process. That person then joins us in Peckham for a period of um, three days, one to three days, to do an initial taster program. That's the second filter process. And the third um, filter process for the ones that make it through then join us for a period of three to six months so then that's when they become employees um, for a period of three to six months and we provide them with skills and education and training and and pay them uh, living wage and they're with you every day every day yeah 
Um, and 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 what's different to what we do is we provide them with housing as well. So the housing is um, our kernel secret recipe, and I'll, I'll share it with you. So it's it's really it's really revolves around the the um, paying people a living wage. You know, if you pay someone a higher salary, they should be able to afford to live in that local community. However, when someone who's been homeless for a period of time goes to a landlord and says, you know, I'm now working, the landlord says, where's your deposit? Where's your first month's rent? Where's Credit your... checks. Exactly, no. your references. And and uh, it's almost impossible for that person. So then you get into a situation of working homeless. So what we then do is uh, go to that same landlord and say, right, rather than that tenant rent, uh, renting from you, we will take the lease in our name and we will sublet to our member of staff. And we would also pay their deposit and we would also pay their first month's rent. So we o- overcome those challenges. So that person then rents from us. And for a period of six months, at least, that per- that person now has some proof of paying rent coming out of their account. They then get onto the rental exchange, so it contributes towards their credit rating. And it means that after six months, they're now on the housing ladder and can rent almost anywhere. Um, so it brings them back into society with a job and housing. That um, level of change is, I say, you, when you talk about it, you make it all sound so like, yeah, you know, it's just what happens, it's just what we do. And then you listen to it and sort of trying to break it down. And so I'm kind of trying to pause you know, for the audience to just sort of give them a chance to kind of take it in because this is huge impacts for people. I mean, to say life-changing is like one of those in the hackney phrases you throw away, but we are talking genuinely life-changing for people. Yeah, it really is. And and, and because it's life-changing, that's why we need to have those initial filter processes because we it's very easy for people who have who hear about what we can offer to then tell us what they feel we want to hear to to be able to have that opportunity. And that's why by working with those local partners around Borough Market, we can have that initial filter process but um it makes such a huge difference to people's lives and and the, the government and and partners tend to focus on and we see this in internationally in all the markets that we're in um the, you know, the housing first model to tackle homelessness is is prevalent and we believe on a job first model as being part of that mix so it's around as i said before you know governments aren't building housing quick enough for social housing and um and what we're doing is saying, well, if you're not building housing quick enough, we're going to get people onto the housing ladder through their employment and their initial means. So, um, you know, there's 480,000 people in the UK who are homeless, and we believe 44% of those want to work and can work. So for us, it's about finding that 44% and stopping them becoming the 56% that aren't necessarily ready. Yeah. Was Brown Market your first place? It was um, technically our first real site. We did have a site down the road. We we started outside Borough Station with a little coffee van and then uh, moved up towards uh, uh, literally 50 metres from Borough Market. Um, and then we went into Borough Market, which was actually a super difficult process because the level of... Um, we had to provide, um, we, we had to do coffee tastings to make sure that the coffee quality was at Borough Market standard. And I've touched on this before on the podcast. It's not easy to become a trader at Borough Market, and nor should it be, really. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Because, you know, people do, tr- there's a such level of trust about what your experience is going to be at the market, whether you're having hot food or whether you're, you're going to store to buy your bread or your fish or your strawberries, whatever it is. Mm. Um there is a level of trust that what you're going to get is of a certain quality and also of a certain provenance, if you use that word before in this. And 
yeah, there are there are yeah, there are steps slash hoops you have to kind of you know go through to do it. And I think I think I think that's a good thing. But yeah, I'm sure for, I'm sure it wasn't necessarily just like walk in and here's my coffee. Exactly because and actually. One of our biggest challenges being a social business is that people assume that there's going to be a compromise on the product because we're doing social impact. And it's a pro- it's a challenge we see every day. So by being in Borough Market, it's a shorthand to consumers knowing that we've gone through a rigorous process to prove that the coffee product, the product itself is of a high standard. Since then, we've won six great taste awards for our coffee. It's been, um, you know, it's really been... Um, a huge amount of accolades for how good the coffee quality is. So, you know, but we went through that process and and actually pre-Borough Market in those first couple of sites, we used to have um, signs up saying reducing homelessness and so on and so forth. And we just weren't busy. It wasn't really attracting um, an audience. It was just another little coffee van. No one really knew who we were. And, I rem- and we were struggling financially. Um, and then... I remember the first Saturday that we were at Borough Market, I'd start crying because we just had queues of people. Um, just My partner was there, actually, and we, I was talking to her, and we just had this queue going down out onto the road. <laughs> we got into, oh, really? we, And, and it, it was kind of, we had to kind of divert it to be a oh, safer wow. space. And, and it was just like this relief of, we've got this idea to support people, but it, it can only work if it's commercially viable. And... Then it just, uh, people were just queuing to buy our product and it was just, this relief came over me and I remember that first day and it was it's our, it was our first real site in, in, in the UK. I can imagine it having that impact on you because it clearly means so much. This is a personal journey for you, isn't it? I mean, obviously you, you have lots of people who work with you now. Can I actually, how many people work for, not the, the, the baristas who kind of, kind of come through the programme, how many people work for Change Please? So pre-COVID it was 72. During COVID, we unfortunately had to go down to 12, and we're now around 130. Okay. Um, you've raised the C word, so let's go into that, mm-hmm. because I was going to ask you about the impact of the pandemic on uh, homelessness and your work. Um, for homelessness, it was um, quite interesting, because the government found uh, this pot of money, which they've never <laughs> seemed to find historically. Yeah. Um, Rye laughter all yeah, around. Yeah. And they... Uh, they essentially ended homelessness by putting people in uh, in hotels. What did uh, you think of that? I thought, why can't we do this long term? This is phenomenal. Like, if it's possible now, I mean, obviously a lot of things had to coincide with, no, you know, minimal tourism and, and therefore hotels being vacant and it kind of... But it's just, it didn't cost that much and it made it uh, fix it, um, it, it. Well, initially we thought it fixed the problem. However, what it taught us was one of the biggest challenges around homelessness isn't just the accommodation or the jobs or being able to sustain that, it's the community. Because essentially people would were staying in their rooms, the food was brought outside their rooms and they weren't integrating. And people were happy to leave as soon as the money ended because they didn't feel connected into a community network. I mean, everything you talked about, about what works and getting people out of homelessness is giving them pride, responsibility, re-engaging in society those things categorically really not fixed by just in inverted commas giving people a roof and leaving some food outside the door. Exactly. Yeah, it's that reintegration back into society. It's the validation that the following day that person comes back to you and asks you for another latte. That means your latte was good on the first day and then you just, it it rebuilds your self-confidence every coffee by 0.1%. 
and then that over time rebuilds back to, to your to your sense of. Um, and, then, and then with that person who has come back, it's also building your social skills, isn't it? It's le- it's relearning the ability to go. Oh hi, I remember you. I remember you too from yesterday. Yes, and developing that um, self confidence, self belief that you can be remembered in a positive way. I'm sure. That Absolutely. Be- yeah, that value that you have. That's from the perspective of the barista or the, the trainee or the beneficiary, we call them, the person who's formerly homeless. But if you think about it from the perspective of the customer who may have seen that person outside of the tube station um, or, or begging out around Borough Market and now serving you a coffee, you have, you've now got a minute gap where you can ask that person of their background, who they were, and it, it now starts to rehumanise that individual. and under- do they, they do. Okay. Well, they do. I mean, I mean it's not it, it, in Borough Market... You know, you've got a mix of tourists and, and people who are local. So, you know, it might not be the same as an office worker who is constantly in that in that um, vicinity on a, on a daily basis. Um, but the, the the most important thing is that it changes the perception around homelessness. So you you hear that person was a brother, a sister, a mother, and and what what particular point in their life if that person if the, if the, if, the, if the trainee is happy to disclose that information but what point in their life they started to go through those troubles and that for us is as important as the impact of that individual because if that customer can now go away and change the way they see the next person who's homeless that perception change in that community is so valuable yeah. um, and, and it, i think it makes it brings it home to people that it can be horrifyingly easy to find yourself in a situation where everything's gone terribly wrong and suddenly you've got nothing yeah and i think those kind of conversations as you just you know, said it humanizes it and also i think we maybe as brits particularly had this horrible thing of being slightly embarrassed about people who are homeless and sort mm. of want to kind of pretend oh you know you know doesn't that's not really you know a thing not really happening and i think what you're doing also kind of really breaks through that, that, that level of connection absolutely yeah i mean on that point, there's 16 and a half million people in the UK that have got less than 350 pounds in their bank account. So that was pre-COVID statistics. That was 2019. So I'm not, I, especially going through COVID and now going through the inflation and cost of living crisis we're in at the moment. I I dare think what that number is now, but it's, it is a bit there. But for the grace of God, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, and it's it, it can really happen to anyone. And and you know the work that we do in the US actually it really isn't down to there is. So many people who are just on a knife edge to become homeless. Um, and, you know, for us, the most important thing is the ability to bounce people back into society quickly because it changes their narrative and their self-identity and and, and what they do. And um, I know we'll speak about buses later, but that's also what the buses do yeah. as well. No, let's do buses because we talked before about how um, you're helping people you know, solve accommodation and you know, financial things but often also people who've been homeless for a while they lose their access to healthcare, don't they so uh you're fixing that as well <clears throat> well so um <laughs> i don't know if we're fixing it but it's um going going back to what i mentioned previously around having the filter of the referral partners the local charities etc we realized that we we'd stopped going directly to people who were rough sleeping on the streets and we were waiting for the referral to come in so we've launched these buses, um, uh, three in London. Uh, it's going to be another one in Manchester and then another one in, in Br- Br- Bristol, Bath, etc. And what they do is they provide vital services to rough sleepers, which are showers, haircuts, clothes washing, um, period products for women, um, new sets, new set of clothes, 
Um, we can open bank accounts on the buses in partnership with HSBC. And uh, on both of uh, so on all of the buses, we've got a doctor's area, so a dedicated room where you can sit in front of a screen and speak to a doctor and say, I've got this problem, I've got this pain, I've got this persistent cough, what does it mean? Um, and it's a GP. The GP can then make prescribe a prescription to a local pharmacy. We had somebody recently who had a lump um, on their body and... Um, Consider, and we've got them immediate access to A&E and it's absolutely going to save their lives. Um, and if you think that in 2020, 976 people died on the streets who were homeless, um, it's, again, absolutely going to save people's lives. On another bus, we've got a state-of-the-art dental surgery. So it's got x-ray equipment, it's got sonar cleaning equipment, um, it's, a, it's got a decontamination room. I mean, it's literally, I think it's better than my own dentist. It's absolutely phenomenal. And we had to do that because to get CQC accreditation, it had to be a gold standard because mm -hmm. it's on a mobile unit. So it's just these amazing services that are going straight to rough sleepers. And what we want to do is firstly give them trust in, an, in our service. But also when they, when they come on board, we take a Polaroid of what they look like and when they leave, we give them another Polaroid of what they look like with a haircut, with a shower, with a new set of clothes. And we want, to, we want them to try and remember the person they used to be. And so many people who are homeless tell us that they're too embarrassed to look at a reflection of themselves in a shop window. So being able to leave with that Polaroid and, and now feel a bit more confident and remember who they used to be is, is such a powerful process in, that, in their next journey. Um, and what we then do is, um, is find people that we feel might be suitable for our coffee program and we do that privately and quietly and, and it's it's while they're having their hair cut and and our hairdressers trained etc to kind of ask those kind of questions and it really allows us to um to then bring people directly into our our main services which is really exciting that's great and all those things which can sound quite superficial desperately aren't in terms of someone's self-confidence but also for that thing of uh ongoing employment completely essential on it that people can you know look like we want people to look when they're doing you know any kind of job or working in you know a, a, a typical environment um, exactly let's oh, i know because I, I i think i'm right in saying that a focus for you is what not just people working at change please but what they're going to go on yes. to talk to me about that so it's really important for us not to provide unrealistic employment which um so therefore we and we were doing that historically you know there's so much love in our team and people that have left their jobs and and taken salary cuts to come and work for us and and you want to give that person their best but we also need to give them a realistic real, realistic impression of what long-term employment should be like and and we need to move people on because if we're not finding onward jobs for people we create a bottleneck of um and not being able to support new people to come through so that's why um we we uh, make sure they turn up on time. There's constant reviews. Um, we constantly give them feedback about their hospitality skills. Um, and we've, we measure our success as to whether they've stayed in employment and out of homelessness six months after they've left us. And we've got an 82% success rate of that. So when, when they leave us, it's, it's, it tends to be around 95, 96% of people who have, have stayed with us during a six-month period or three to six-month period. However, 82% is have they stayed in employment and out of homelessness six months after they've left. Which and roughly is how many people is that? Well, what? So we in 2019 supported around 500 people, which is the equivalent of 
five and a half percent of the UK's rough sleeping population. So, you know, 20 times 20 of us, you know, it, it's not as a exciting statistic because that what wouldn't necessarily happen as people who are a lot more vulnerable and got severe mental health issues and drug dependencies but as a statistic that's that's how it works and what kind of jobs are people going on to it really depends on that person's background so you know at the moment we've got people who are formerly homeless working for us as our accountants in our team um doing our marketing uh our, our social media sorry um um someone else who's um uh yeah, so quite a few people in our team. But then we look at that per- what that person used to do historically, but also what their skill sets are and what they'd like to move on to. So we've had people that used to be amazing artists and then got we got them graphic design training to then go and apply their skills into something that's relevant in today's society. We've had people who were really uh, fantastic at writing poet- poetry and um, we got them work as a copywriter, for example. Um, it really depends on their background. And what's interesting is so many people who are homeless, you would just never expect them to be homeless. From You know, there's a chap who's homeless around Borough Market, I think even at the moment, and he used to be have his own consulting business, have a plus 300,000 a year income, um, and he, um, he's got so much to give, but he still has these challenges and demons and, and barriers which, which stop him from being able to do that, which comes back to my point around it's not about giving somebody a job and a, and a, and a house. It's about tackling that mental health and that trauma that that person is still probably facing. And treating them as an individual rather than there being sort of, you know, these set things that people might go on to do. It's fantastic. And, and I would expect nothing else in the conversation we've had that you really think about what that person yeah, it's what their skill set was could be. They it's well that that's the importance of raising your money through um, organically. So if we do it through trade. If we were to rely on um, grants or donations or payment by results contracts or DWP funding, which is all of these things are very rare. But if we were to rely on that and not be a social business, you're paid by the number of people you support. So therefore, you're looking at quantity rather than quality. So for us, you'd be trying to find the least vulnerable person that you could just move on quickly. Whereas for us, sorry, we are finding people that have a, um, you know, they might be currently taking heroin or they have got severe challenges. So we can be much more patient with them because we choose who we want to employ because we're making the money from people buying our coffee and not from someone else's um, contract. Mm. You mentioned uh, the US earlier, mm. so not just in the UK, I'm getting. Yep, so our first international country, stupidly, was Australia. And oh, I, stupidly? So stupidly because it was so far away. Oh, okay. Um, it's, it's going great and it's doing really well. Um, we've Why ju- did you choose Australia? Uh, purely opportunistic reasons. Um, we, we, we work with a the biggest um, uh, corporate um co-working company in the world and, and they they came to us and said actually we're opening new sites in australia you do amazing work for us in the uk selling us coffee would you be open to and i just said yes it's one of the things uh, richard brunson said to me he said um if you don't if, if you're given an opportunity and you don't know how to do it just say yes and learn how to do it later so <laughs> that's how i live my entrepreneurial life sounds um, like great advice yeah so we said yes and i learned how to do it later very slowly <laughs> and we set up a company and a charity and and that was in and now we're opening five hospitals in brisbane sorry we're not opening five hospitals we're opening five coffee shops in hospitals there and um and then moving to sydney and and speaking to a huge 
huge bank to, to, to replicate the buses there, um, which are really exciting. Uh, and then we opened in Paris. And actually, if I was to start Change Piece again, it'd probably be in, in France. Um, the social enterprise space is really quite far behind, if I'm honest. And also the coffee... Here or there? There. there. Yeah. It's quite developed in the UK because um, of the great work that Social Enterprise UK and School of Social Entrepreneurs do and etc. But um, in France, it's quite far behind. But also coffee quality is, is also quite far behind as well. It doesn't really... You don't have as many speciality coffee bars. And we've just won so many accounts there with huge corporates and um, government and partners like Google. And it's just been phenomenal there. And we're supporting so many people. Um, and we're also in Ireland. We've just opened a site in Germany um, um, and uh, won a contract in Sweden. But our biggest market by far is going to be in the US. It really is um, just ridiculous, the opportunity there. Firstly, from a commercial perspective, one client with uh, we're speaking to at the moment um, is a bank and they've got 3,200 branches. Um, another's an airline. Um, um, and there's just one of those contracts will almost double our UK revenue that we've taken six years to generate. Um, but at the same time, they've got undoubtedly the, the worst homelessness, homelessness problem of unsheltered ho- um, um, homelessness in the world. So you're replicating what you have done here in it. So, so, so you'll so to take the the American ones. You would be working with people who are homeless in the states. Just so it's, it's it's both things. It's not just the selling coffee. It's the it's, ex- it's replicating the model. It's replicating the model. The only difference is in the US, we are supporting just women and children who are homeless. Ninety five percent, but then five percent will be military veterans as well. In Australia, we support people who are indigenous homeless and also people between the ages of 16 and 24 who are homeless. Uh, in Ireland, uh, it's everybody who's homeless and, and UK the same, uh, any, anyone who's homeless, sorry. Uh, and in France, again, it's just women and children. Okay. What is the homeless situation in states? I feel I have no idea about the answer. I mean, it's... Um, in, in Skid Row, in Los Angeles, which is 2.7 square miles, 50 blocks... It's 6,700 rough sleepers. In the whole of the UK, there's 6,800 rough sleepers. This was pre-COVID. Um, there's now 11,000 homeless in the UK who are rough sleeping. So there's a, the, pre-COVID, there was 100 more rough sleepers in the whole of the UK than just Skid Row, which is three, 2.7 square miles. It's insane. Um, so, yeah, you look across California, you look in, um, in everywhere from Seattle, Los Angeles, sorry, um, New York, and where you would see Tent City and Skid Row, you now pretty much see it everywhere. You, you, you see encampments in Austin, in Indianapolis, in, in New York, and again, they're trying to throw money at the problem, but contain it. And so, for example, there's a contract in... Los Angeles, where um, an organization's paid, I think, around $7,000 a month just to make sure that the tents in Skid Row aren't being aren't burnt down. So they're looking at kind of health and safety or providing advice. Whereas for $7,000, what you can do to kind of sustainably start to tackle the problem and be preventative and rather than just um, contain it, I think, is is really interesting. And, and that's why I think our model is being really well received in the US. Uh, we've just had a funder actually from Colorado fly over to to, to exp- essentially export our system out over to, to Denver, which is really exciting. And um, because it just doesn't exist in the same way. Um, so yeah, really interesting 
market and it's going to be by far our biggest market in in the world i think um let's bring it back home to borough market um in the time that you've been doing it how do you feel uh borough market has changed i suppose it's always interesting to kind of ask people who've been at the market for a while to kind of see how they because the market i I think is wonderful it's always evolving Mm. it's it's so amazing to see how um the market bounced back after the terror attacks Mm. Um, after after the the second attacks on the bridge, um, after COVID, um, and how they it's, supported us. It's been us. quite the time. It's been unbelievable, yeah. I mean, and also just things like um, the support provided to our staff who were working during the terror attacks from, you know, we provided therapy and counselling already, but it was just the offer to to support us and, and all, all traders. Um, the level of sincerity and integrity... Um, and feeling part of a family, um, you know, we've got now hundreds of sites across the UK, but the, you really feel part of a community and a family in Borough Market. It's a funny thing, isn't it? So I've been working with the market, just coming up to six years actually, so kind of roughly about the same time that you've been doing change, please. Um, I wish I could say that in six years I'd had such an impact upon uh, people, but it really does have that community feel to it. And it's, I always feel it's kind of hard to put your finger on, isn't it, as to what it is that engenders mm. that. I think partly it's, from our perspective anyway, it's so difficult to become a trader. You really value your space. But equally, every decision that's made is explained why, and you feel part of the process, you feel part of that community. And that that engenders a, um, a family feel, and you feel part of the development and the growth. And I think that because it's a relatively small space as well, you you want to develop it and enhance it for everybody's benefit. So it attracts new traders and and, and attracts new, um, sorry, not trade, it attracts new um, customers. Um, and therefore it enhances your business, but it enhances others. So we're all in the same, um, in, in, in part, you know, we, we, if, we, if, we, if we're doing well, then we, on a Saturday or, or during a week, we'll all do well. Um, if we're doing badly, we'll all do badly. So we're all in it together. Um, and that's what's so wonderful about the market. You really feel part of that community. Yeah. Um, without a shadow of doubt, you will have inspired every single person who's listening to this to want to sort of, you know, stand up and make a difference themselves too. What would you say is the best way for people to, to do that, to support your work and otherwise? Well, I think forgetting us, the what we ask people is just to really think about social business, social enterprise, to look at your supply chains, the provenance of where you purchase your products, understand the number of people that are in that supply chain who are benefiting or losing and really think about the products that you purchase. Um, I think that's really important for us. And it doesn't have to be, in our case, coffee or homelessness, but it can be about what water you buy or what uh, biscuits or what AV equipment or what company can do your events. So research a social enterprise first, I think, and think about the impact that they could have and the opportunity cost of not working with that social business. And, and um, yeah, it's, it's the second thing I'd ask people to do is when you walk past somebody who's homeless, you know, try to break the labels and the stereotypes that the media has forced us to, not forced us, but have, 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 um, have put on people who are homeless. Um, and you know they're not all lazy. They're, they're not all wanting just to be out on the streets. They're not all drug addicts, and uh, and you know, um, and that that might be one or two percent, but that's really not the rest of the people. So it's just a smile to a person who's homeless. It's a acknowledgement that they exist. It's um, 
buying them a sandwich if you don't want to give them money, but really think about where our beliefs around those labels came from and think about what the reality could be. Are they a father, a brother, a sister, a mother? And, and, and you know, um, and I hear so many stories of people who walk past with their children, walk past people who are homeless and their children just say, they question they start crying. I had someone yesterday actually saying to me that their seven-year-old started crying and donate, gave all their pocket money to, to someone who was locally homeless. But we get to a point in our lives where we just think, um, we just continue walking and actually it's it's someone else's problem or it's it's we, we're able to switch it off. Um, and we're not expecting anybody to fix a problem, that's fine, but a smile goes such a long way and it just rehumanizes that person a little bit when they're really... Uh, in a difficult moment. And just to say that from those 976 people who died on the streets in 2020, 17% of those were suicides. So if it's just a case of giving a smile and it might change someone's day and stop something from happening, then I think that's that goes a long way. I think we all owe a debt of thanks to whoever it was who did the rocking chair thing with you in, in <laughs> Vietnam because that's changed your life. But also, you know, I'm joking about it, but also not because that has changed so many people's lives since and I'm going to say mine as well from having talked to you and I'm guessing more than a fair few people listening it's very kind of you well no it's absolutely extraordinary to talk to you Um, thank you so much for joining us lovely lovely to see you my pleasure thank you thanks for joining us today we'll be back with more Borough Talks soon a reminder that Borough Market is now open seven days a week For those who can't make it down here, you can still enjoy the best of Borough at Borough Market Online with nationwide delivery. You can head to our website for more information, subscribe to our newsletter. There are lots of recipes and features on the Borough Market traders.